you will take your copy of God's Word and open it to Luke chapter 20, verses 19 through 44 are under our consideration this morning. There is much to cover, so once you join me there, I will read the text and we'll ask the Lord for His help in illumination this morning and dive in. Luke chapter 20, verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Pray with me, will you? Father, there is much to consider from this text. And therefore, Lord, there is much to behold in this text. I pray this morning that you would magnify the Lord Jesus among us and that in seeing him, that we would treasure him for who he is. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. 
Well, friends, I don't know if there is a more fitting time, a more fitting cultural moment for Christians to be considering their relationship to governmental authorities and the taxes levied on citizens to support the priorities of these governmental authorities than the moment that we're in. And make no mistake about it, that thought process is one that Christians ought to give consideration to. However, contrary to popular belief, the text we find set before us this morning in our preaching calendar does not answer these questions. There are plenty of biblical texts and and theological resources that I would be glad to share with you that do speak to those things. But the task of the preacher is to convey the authorial intent of the text of Scripture. And in the narrative that Luke has constructed, he has a clear point to make in this chapter. That point can actually be distilled into the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism that we uh, recited a moment ago. The confession asks, what is our only comfort in life and death? Some versions translate that uh, term comfort, hope. What is our only hope in life and death? And the response to the question is that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And then the Catechism goes on to say that, Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of life eternal and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. And and this is precisely the message that the Lord Jesus was unpacking for the religious leaders in the scene that Luke relays to us. The Pharisees did not rightly understand where hope in life was to be found. The Sadducees did not understand that they needed a hope in death. And none of the religious leaders understood what sort of Savior could accomplish these things. These misunderstandings really shape the movements of the text. So they'll serve as our outline this morning. Three movements of the text in three points this morning. First, we'll consider uh, our comfort in life. Second, our comfort in death. And third, we'll consider the Christ of comfort. These are the realities that Jesus brings to their attention, and therefore uh, it's what demands our attention this morning as well. So let's look to the text and consider these things together. The, the first thing that Jesus deals with is where to find comfort in life. After Jesus made clear to the Pharisees through the preceding parable that uh, they were guilty of rejecting the word of God concerning Jesus, th- these Pharisees we see in our text devise a plan that they thought was invincible. The plan is laid out in verse 24. It says, They sent spies who pretended to be sincere. So these men would speak words of flattery and attempt to look like followers. But to what end? Well, the goal is also given to us in verse 20. They did this that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. 
the, the Pharisees wanted to lure Jesus into setting himself up in opposition to Caesar because they knew that if they could succeed in this endeavor, it would amount to treason and result in Jesus falling to Caesar's sword. So the, the, the spies come with their deceptive flattery in verse 21, saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. And once they think they've sufficiently veiled their motives, they set their trap. And they ask in the next verse, Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now, they were certain that they would succeed here because even if Jesus were to evade execution by telling the people that they should pay tribute to Caesar, then it's still a win for the Jewish leaders. You see, if Jesus just says, yes, it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then all of the Jews that had started following him would turn his, their backs on him. Because the Jewish leaders of the day had led the people to believe that the long-awaited Messiah promised in the Old Testament would deliver Israel from Roman rule. The, the Jews hated the Roman occupation. So the expectation was that the Christ would come and overthrow the Roman rulers, take the place of Caesar, and usher in a time of submission to God alone as king. Not just spiritually, but geopolitically. And in setting these expectations for the people, the Pharisees had indoctrinated a generation of Jews to believe that the real hope for this life was physical, material peace and prosperity. A physical, or excuse me, yeah, a physical, invisible reign of God was their hope and comfort in life. And the way this, or this indoctrination began was with a, a zeal to be free from the Roman rule and free to worship God in Him alone. But by the time that Jesus comes on the scene, this wrong-headed but, but God-oriented desire had morphed into sheerly worldly longing for peace and prosperity. Their comfort was found in the hope of a geopolitical reality brought about by a Messiah that they could manipulate. Jesus was clearly not this sort of leader. So they plotted. And their confidence in this meticulous, or excuse me, malicious plan was undoubtedly solidified. It was undoubtedly bolstered by the fact that among the ranks of Jesus' disciples was one like Simon the Zealot. The, the Zealots, you'll remember, were a group of first century uh, uh, political activists. They despised being under the Roman rule. If the Jews hated it, the zealots despised the Roman rule. And they sought to overthrow the occupying Roman government. So, so the plan, you see, was foolproof. It was time for Jesus to pay the piper. He would either face the wrath of Caesar or the rejection of the people. Yet there, in the midst of the crowd, we read that Jesus perceived their craftiness. And we're told in verse 23 that this is the case. And so he, he rises above the question of taxes 
and begins to speak to the issue of their hearts. Look with me at his response in verse 24. There he says, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. A denarius was a piece of Roman currency used to pay the very tax in question here. It bore the stamp, the image of the emperor. Now, marking the currency with the image of the ruler was an indication of sovereignty over that sphere of life. It communicated that as long as the ruler provides the infrastructure and government in which you make your life, you will render back to him what he has provided for you. So by pointing to the realm of sovereignty in which they they, they live, Jesus, he makes little of their question. They've asked, is it lawful to render this tribute to Caesar, Jesus responds, Caesar's image on the coin, right? Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But it's the additional comment that he makes that foils their plan and that stops them dead in their tracks. He says, yes, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. You see, by appealing to spheres of sovereignty here, Jesus has confronted them with the reality that they are concerned with who has sovereignty over the currency, but they've forgotten who has sovereignty over their very life, the one to whom they belong. He's saying, your money bears the image and likeness of Caesar, but whose image and likeness do you bear? Whose image and likeness is upon you? You'll remember that when God made man, he declared in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So the, the parallel conclusion, you see, is inescapable. If it is right and natural to submit to Caesar that which bore his image, then it is right to submit to God that which bears his image, namely, yourself. This is why in the end of the catechism question that we recited earlier, it states that by His Holy Spirit, God makes believers heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Believers, you see, are to submit themselves to the one whose image that they bear. Now, keep in mind that Jesus, just prior to this text condemned the Jewish leaders for rejecting God's word and authority over them. And consequently, he's saying that they rejected the divinely authorized message of their salvation. So the Pharisees just want to be done with Jesus and to to trap him by his words so that they can deliver him over to those that may execute him. But rather than getting in a mudslinging competition with them and trying to save his own skin, as it were, He confounds their malice by leaning into the issue of the soul that they refuse to see. Jesus is saying that their comfort and hope is set on deliverance from those who occupy their land when it should be set on the one who can deliver them from the sin which occupies their heart. They need the divine hope that only a Messiah could bring. 
but they're looking for it in all the wrong places, in all the wrong ways, and most importantly, from the wrong kind of Messiah figure. Now the question rightly comes, well, if geopolitical freedom is not the sum and substance of comfort in this life, then what does it mean for Jesus to be our comfort in life? Well, the full measure of earthly hope found in Jesus is beyond the scope of this sermon. However, I, I do think that we're given a pretty good summary of it when Paul refers to the gospel message as a, a message of reconciliation. The New Testament consistently testifies that the gospel brings reconciliation in a way that affects us both internally and externally. First and foremost, the gospel brings reconciliation between God and man. Romans 5 verse 1 tells us that being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is That that peace, that reconciliation that brings internal comfort, you see. It's what every unbeliever wrestles with as they live in a state of enmity with God. It's why the unbeliever lives in a perpetual state of restlessness. They try to find solace for the soul in endless series of Idols, thinking that they might bring them comfort. It's this state that the church father Augustine spoke of when he wrote, Thou hast made me for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And it's this internal peace, you see, This internal peace with God that brings about the external effects of gospel reconciliation. The gospel not only reconciles God and man, but it also reconciles man with man. When the gospel humbles people to recognize that they are but recipients of the unmerited favor of God, brought about by nothing in themselves, it enables them to bow together before that reality and rise up as advocates of one another. This is why struggling marriages find hope and healing in the gospel. It's why brothers and sisters that otherwise have nothing in common can find themselves bound together in loving friendship in a way that the world finds inexplicable. It's why two like Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector could find themselves living life together in a unified submission to and pursuit of the singular source of their hope. This all begs the question, friends. Whose image is upon you? And not just that, but... Do you find your only comfort in life derived from submission to him? Whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're a saint who is thriving in your walk with the Lord or you're hanging on by your fingernails, these questions deserve your attention today. Whose image is upon you? Do you find your hope for life derived from submission to him? 
Now, after Jesus foiled the plans of the Pharisees and, and we're told that they became silent, other Jewish leaders made their attempt to undermine Jesus' authority as well. A, a question comes from the Sadducees and Jesus' response to them reveals the great need that they had for comfort in death. Comfort in death is our next consideration. The, the Pharisees and Sadducees had quite different beliefs. And that leads to a different subject in question when the Sadducees come to him. The, the Pharisees asked about things pertaining to life, while the Sadducees asked about matters pertaining to death. In both instances, Jesus reveals mankind's need for comfort and hope in these areas, yet the, these different groups start in different places. You see, the, the Pharisees recognized that they needed a hope in life. But Jesus revealed to them that they had misplaced that hope. The Sadducees, on the other hand, they come asking Jesus about death, not thinking that they needed any comfort at all in death. The, the Sadducees were a sect of Jewish leaders that were really anti-supernaturalists. And, and, and consequently, they not only rejected the idea of a physical resurrection, but the notion of life after death at all. They, they were scrupulous in their adherence to the Mosaic Law as well. And, and this is why they asked the question that they do in the way that they do. Luke tells us in verse 27, look there, there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question. These men here proceeded to reference the Leveret Law prescribed in Deuteronomy 25. And they did this thinking that it would make the idea of a resurrection sound foolish and, and inconsistent with the Scriptures. And since Jesus clearly held to the doctrine of the resurrection, they thought that in doing so, it would undermine his message. So they posed a hypothetical situation to Jesus. Look at verse 28 with me. They say, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife with no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. Now, in contrast to the way that he responded to the Pharisees, Jesus takes this question head on. He first gives them a lesson in the purpose of marriage and then a lesson in Bible interpretation and all to display to them their need for a hope that stretches beyond this life. Look with me at verse 34. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age into the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So, in answer to their question, Jesus plainly says that marriage is an institution of God for our earthly pilgrimage. He says that it will not be a part of our experience in eternity future. 
And he explains, at least in part, why marriage is not a part of our experience in heaven. In verse 36 we read, For they cannot die anymore. Now, why does no more death in the age to come equal no more marriage in the age to come? Because one of God's purposes for marriage is the multiplication of image bearers. Again, we go back to Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, 28, we read of the creation mandate. There, God says to the man and woman he has made, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. You see, it pleases God for the world to increase in image bearers. Because it's through them that God accomplishes His purposes in redemptive history and receives glory. But, friends, from the foundation of time, there has been a definite number of souls that will inhabit the heavens in glory. And what Jesus is saying is that at the end of this age, that definite number will be realized. Therefore, this and the other purposes of marriage will be fulfilled at the close of this present age. There will be no more death, and so there will be no more need for multiplication. But Jesus doesn't stop there in schooling these religious leaders. He, having reminded them of the nature and the God-ordained purposes of the marriage relationship, he transitions to address the fact of the resurrection with them. And he does this by pointing them to what they claim is their source of authority, namely the Bible. He continues by saying, But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Here, Jesus is pointing to Exodus 3. Specifically, he's, he's pointing to Exodus 3, verse 6, when God says to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Of course, by the time that God was speaking to Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for many years, which is Jesus' point, you see. And friends, it's important to notice how Jesus makes his argument from the text of Exodus. It's not as some of the liberal theologians would have us to believe by appealing to the broad narrative of redemptive history that the Bible lays out. As though the Bible gives us stories that may or may not be grounded in history and that certainly aren't meant to relay the very words of God. No. Just the opposite. In making his point to the Sadducees, Jesus appeals to the very grammar of Exodus 3, verse 6. It's as though he says to these men, you need to go back to Bible Interp 101. You've forgotten the verb tense. God did not say, I was the God of your father. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As a consequence of the fall, friends, death is the final earthly state for everyone. But Jesus contends here that death is by no means the end of anyone's existence. 
there is a world beyond this present visible one in which every person will be raised to their eternal state, either to glorious life in eternal blessing or to awful torment in eternal condemnation. And and that reality, that reality that eternity is inescapable and that it only has two forms, that reality draws our attention to what Jesus says next about attaining to this state of glorious resurrection. He says in verse 35 that those who attain this resurrection are those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection. Considered worthy. But if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you know that that poses an incredible problem. The Bible's clear that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And Romans 3 is clear in telling us that none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside, and together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one, we're told. So if our worthiness is the basis of comfort in death, then anxious dread should meet us every day when we open our eyes. But in an effort to understand this fully, we need to follow Jesus' model of Bible interpretation. As such, we turn to the grammar of this text. And in doing so, we praise God. Because the the, the fact is that verse 35 does not say those who are worthy, but rather, what does it say? Look at it. Those who are considered worthy. Now, other translations read those who are counted worthy. It is not that our eternal state depends on our inherent worthiness or our pious achievements. No, God has purpose that worthiness of eternal bliss and enjoyment of God is based on a righteousness that is counted to us, not a righteousness that comes from us. Listen to the way that Paul captures the idea in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12. Calling the Ephesian believers to remember their natural condition, he says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul says the problem is the same for all people from birth. We have no hope because our sin nature separates us from God, making us His enemies. But Paul is as clear about the solution as he is about the problem. If our hopeless state is caused by separation from Christ, then union with Christ is where hope is found. Union with Christ by faith. Remember 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, it is Christ who is worthy, not us. So our hope of being eternal sons rather than eternal 
enemies rests solely on our union with Him by faith. This is the good news about how one is considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead. Contrary to what the Sadducees thought, there is a need for hope beyond the grave. There is an eternal reality that awaits every soul. And that reality is informed by our worthiness before God. But, praise be to God, it is the worthiness of His own Son's merit and blood that testify for those united to Him by faith. In the last movement of this dialogue, Jesus speaks to the identity of the Christ who brings comfort and hope. So let's consider together now the Christ of comfort. After having stopped the mouths of the Sadducees once and for all, he turns to yet another group of Jewish leaders, the scribes. And Jesus turns the, the Q&A session that had been going on around on them. The scribes actually commended Jesus for his response to the Sadducees in verse 39. But Jesus was not done bringing his message about comfort in life and death to a point. He, he had made the point that hope in life and death were to be found in the Christ of God. But Jesus wanted the message to be unequivocally clear that he is the anointed one, the Christ of God. So before they could shuffle off, Jesus says, now let me ask you a question. Look quickly with me, starting at verse 41. He says, but he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Now, now you may be lost in both Jesus and David's use of the terms son and Lord there. It's a bit difficult to follow unless you're reading it slowly. But if indeed you read Psalm 110 that Jesus is quoting here, you would understand that David is writing of the descendant that the Lord promised would sit on his throne forever. And, and this is the figure that the Jewish leaders were looking for. One who would enjoy the favor of the Lord. And to quote Psalm 110, he would rule in the midst of his enemies. But Jesus raises the point that the hope of a, a Psalm 110 Messiah the way that they had conceptualized him was problematic. Specifically, it was problematic given the way that in Jewish culture, earlier generations were always considered greater and wiser than the later generations. The forerunners of the faith always outranked the faithful that followed. So how could David's son be called David's Lord. Now to us this may seem obvious, but we're the beneficiaries of 2,000 years of theological study and formulation from some of the brightest minds that have ever mined the pages of Scripture. The answer was clearly not apparent to first century Israel. 
Jesus used this quotation to drive home the fact that none of the different groups of Jewish teachers had a right understanding of a Savior that could bring comfort in life and death. We've already seen that the Pharisees and Sadducees, they overemphasized the humanity of the Messiah. It was a majestic humanity, without a doubt. It was one that was, had victorious rule and unmatched wisdom. But in the case of the Pharisees, an earthly kingdom was all that they were hoping in. And in the case of the Sadducees, their anti-supernaturalism stifled their belief that God could even intervene in history, much less that divinity and humanity could dwell together in the same person. But that is precisely what Jesus is setting before them in posing this question. How can they say that the Christ is merely David's son when David himself calls him Lord? The answer is that these religious leaders of the day had too small a view of the Messiah. They thought that their Messiah was too big for Jesus to fulfill. Jesus wasn't born of noble birth. He isn't royalty. For Pete's sake, he was born in a barn. He has no armies to command. He's just followed by a ragtag group of extremists. The one they hoped in would be regal and respectable. After all, he was to crush God's enemies and restore the kingdom to the children of God. Yet, yet they thought their view was too high for Jesus. But what Jesus reveals from David's statement is that the kind of king they needed was greater than even what they thought. They need a king who can bring hope to their earthly lives by way of conquering the enemy of sin not the enemy of the state. They needed a king who could reconcile them to God and bring peace both internally and externally and settle the enmity that they had with God. They needed a, a savior king that lived a perfect life and conquered death, proving that he has the authority to credit his righteousness to them and raise them up from the grave. What they needed was more than a son of David. Jesus quoted David in order to show that they needed who, one who was both the son of David and the son of God. For only one who is both fully divine and fully human can accomplish these marvelous feats. Now the dialogue with these Religious leaders ends without Jesus giving an answer to the question. He certainly doesn't receive one in response. He just poses it rhetorically because the answer is clear enough in the question. Not only is the answer clear, but his identification of who this God-man was was clear as well. Jesus is saying, I am the son of David, and the son of God. And the reason that you don't think I measure up is because you don't understand the hope that you need. 
Your need is different than you think. And as such, the true son of David, the Savior, is different than you think him to be. Silently, Jesus is screaming here, I am he. Friends, I don't know how you came in here this morning. Maybe you came in here as an unbeliever. And like the Pharisees, you, you set your hope in life on something other than Jesus Christ and the peace with God that he brings. Like the Sadducees, you've never thought that you needed any hope in death. My prayer for you, friend, is that you would see your need for hope in both of these areas. And that in seeing it, you would trust Christ alone to secure it. Repent, friend. Repent of your friend and entrust your soul to the only faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Maybe you came in this morning as a Christian and you know that ultimately your hope is in Christ and His redeeming worth, both in life and in death. You know that your ultimate hope is Christ. But perhaps you know that functionally you haven't been living like that for some time. Maybe it's been a day, maybe a week, maybe an elongated season. But you know that what has been giving you peace and calming your anxiousness in real time is something other than the redeeming work of Christ. And if that's you, brother or sister, hear this text this morning calling you to repent. Turn from trusting in and finding peace in fleeting desires. And reorient your thinking to cultivate a deep and practical treasuring of the person and work of Christ. I, I know that that sounds high-minded and theological, cultivating this mind of treasuring the person and work of Christ, but it is intensely practical, friends. When we think much on Jesus, we begin to see how glorious He is and how immeasurable His sacrifice was, which leads to living a life that's centered on Him, a life that is lived in gratitude to Him. But no matter where you are this morning, if you are united to Christ by faith, it doesn't matter if the text confronts you in sin or not. There's no way for a believer to read this text and not be encouraged. But because here we find that our hope in life and death is solid and secure. We serve a God who's not just promised to give us hope, but has accomplished it. We find in Christ the greatest confidence in life and in death because as God, He put on flesh to do what only the God-man could do. We can be assured of eternal life, the Catechism tells us, because of His perfect fulfillment of the law and His resurrection from the dead. We can have lives motivated by grace rather than by fear and angst. Because we've been reconciled to God in Christ. Our comfort is great 
not because something in us is great. No. Our comfort is great because our Savior is great, friends. Amen. Pray with me. Father, God, our Savior is great. And we thank You for such a wonderful Savior. One who can give us peace in life, peace in death, because of all that He accomplishes by His work as the perfect second Adam and His work as the perfect Son of God. Lord, I pray that You would help us in consideration of this reality to love Him and treasure Him and live for Him more. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.